This episode is brought to you by Direct Drilling, a locally owned family drilling company based in Kununurra, servicing the Kimberley and the Northern Territory. All drillers are nationally licensed with the Australian Drilling Industry Association, ensuring best practice, the protection of water resources and guaranteeing the life of the bore. Find out more at directdrill.com.au. Listening to the Central Station Podcast, where we bring you true stories of what life in the outback is really like and why many wouldn't live anywhere else. So pull up a stump, pop the billy on, or crack a cold one as we talk to the men and women who call some of the most remote parts of Australia home. This podcast is brought to you by Ariat Australia, the perfect choice for the tough jobs. Ariat boots and clothing work hard, look good, and are so comfortable there's never a need to slow down. Visit ariat.com.au today. Dr. Campbell Costello, aka Cozzy, is a jet setting veterinarian who has practiced not only throughout Australia, but all over the world. In this episode, Cozzy reflects on the time he spent nine months in Kazakhstan managing a cattle ranch that was being built from scratch. From language barriers and cultural differences to finding workers drunk on the job before lunch and trying to keep the cattle healthy and safe from freezing snow and wild wolves, Cozzy sure had one hell of a challenge ahead of him. So sit back and enjoy this episode full of yarns that will put Kazakhstan on your travel bucket list. Very good. <laughs> Cozzy, welcome to the podcast. Hello again. Nice to be back. I love you said hello again as if this isn't your first episode, but it is. First episode, but not our first time uh, catching up. Oh, what has it been? Interstate, international, interwebs, all around the place. It had to be six years this year. It would have been 2016 mm. that I... Would have gone to twenty six no twenty seventeen so five years. There you go, Louisiana. It's, it's been a uh, yeah, it's been uh, hills and valleys and and random postcodes. That's for sure. Louisiana, Broome, Tennant Creek, and now Alice Springs. Yeah, all the magical places. Yeah. So you've been roped into doing a podcast. Mm. Uh, why? Why have I been roped into a podcast? Uh, I don't know. I feel like there's a bit of a yarn to tell and uh, you and I have always um, sat back and dissected the finite uh, parts of life. And also it's the rent you're paying for staying at <laughs> my house and it's not my house. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> so, Cozzy's in Alice Springs at the moment working as a vet. What brings you to Alice Springs? What brings me to Alice Springs? Um, so my business model uh, at the moment is a uh, is a flying vet, and uh, and what we refer to as a locum or a, or a casual veterinary staff member. Um, oh, there's sort of several parameters that have led to this, um, but yeah, the main one is the uh, massive veterinary shortage that uh, had sort of plagued regional Australian postcodes for you know decades. 
but is also starting to affect our more um, urban postcodes as well. So just a shortage of vets. There's a lot of clinics there ready to go and a lot of animals around and just not many people to cover the fort. So you're sort of like a substitute teacher that, you know, when a teacher's off sick, you know, you get your substitute in, but you're a vet. So you're kind of filling in all over the spot, well, all over the country, really. Yeah, 100%. So, like, um, you know, a lot of the clinics I go to, they're short-staffed or someone's sick. You know, COVID is another sort of variable that's been thrown into the mix that uh, all of a sudden you're down one, two, three, four vet staff members. So, you know, a veterinary clinic that was under strain is, before you know, uh, on their knees and grown to a halt. So, yeah, it's a combination of... Um, yeah, some experience, bringing some skills, but just relieving, doing on call, um, yeah, letting people have a breather. But unfortunately, sometimes being the locum, you just go, you're just constantly doing that yourself. So you just got to remember to pull up yourself. When you just said relieving, that made me realize I'd said st- substitute teacher, which is the American term, but relief oh. teacher is what we would have called uh-huh. it when we were young. So you're like the relief teacher of a vet. 1-800-DAL-A-VET, call yep. Cozzy and he'll fly anywhere in the country and fill in. 100%. You give me the longitude and latitude or uh, you've got an airstrip nearby and, uh, yeah, I'll drop in and say hi. Or like 1-800-RENT-A-CROWD. Yeah. <laughs> but rent-a-vet. Upwardvets.com. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I guess it would make sense to start right at the beginning, but we're not going to do that because okay. nothing about you or – Anything makes sense, I guess. No. That sounds kind of sassy when I say it that way, but I don't mean it like that. I want to talk first up about the time you spent in Kazakhstan, which is a real country. Yes. It's not just made up from the Borat movie. Mm -hmm. I haven't even seen the Borat movie, but anyway. Look, you know, it's a it's an acquired taste. Had, yep. you, had you seen it before you first went to Kazakhstan? I'd, I'd seen it many, many times. Oh, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I was quite uh, quite well versed in uh, in the Borat film, hundred percent. Okay, so tell me, how did the opportunity to go and work as a vet in Kazakhstan come about? Oh gosh. Um, well, the uh, the journey leading up to it was uh, quite a tumultuous one. Um, I'd found myself. Uh, Relocating some cattle and, and starting up a dairy farm in the Punjab, Punjab uh, province of Pakistan, just out of Lahore. Um, and I got a text message out of the blue just going, Hey, mate, uh, we believe you're in a country ending with Stan, Pakistan. Uh, what are the chances you'd be able to duck into Kazakhstan? Uh, I was currently in my um, motel room at that time with some pretty bad gastro and I was, you know, felt pretty under the weather and was uh, having a bit of time off. Um, and I was like, yep, no worries. Uh, you've got, you know, 500, 600 head of, um, Australian Angus cattle out in the wilderness of Kazakhstan. Um, I'm due to fly home in 12 hours. You've got a couple of hours to get back to me to see if you can shuffle some flights, pull some international long hauls, get me into Almaty and back to Australia. Um, so I left it a couple of hours and sure enough, I, uh, I got an email and a rebuttal saying, here's your flights via Dubai into Almaty. Uh, you'll have 10 days, two weeks on the farm and then we'll repatriate you with Australia. So it sort of started this, uh, this really, you know, short job. Um, you know, to go in, uh, segregate some, uh, some first calving heifers, you know, do a really thorough preg test, you know, just some basic, uh, husbandry and management, um, tips and, and, and stuff, uh, cause, you know, Kazakhstan probably hadn't invested in their agricultural business, uh, sorry, agricultural sector, uh, since, you know, the fall of the Soviet Union, which Borgachev called that off in the early nineties. So yeah, I find myself, um, at 
17, 20 below zero, um, crunching around on some snow and ice, uh, preg testing these little Angus heifers um, under this tiny little shed and a crush in the middle of Kazakhstan. So it was in a place uh, near Sati, uh, which is right on the mountain ranges between Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan and where China meet. So, um, yeah, about, you know, six hours drive from, from our Marty, middle of nowhere. So what can you tell us about Kazakhstan? As a country you just mentioned about, you know, it used to be a part of the Soviet Union mm-hmm. um, and that it hadn't invested in agriculture. But, like, as a as a country today or when you were there, like, what what was it like? What was the, I guess, the political environment, the mm. the actual environment? Um, Kazakhstan is underrated, I'd have to say. Um, it's uh, one of the largest landlocked countries in the world. It's just a, a little bit um, smaller than Australia. Uh, so I, I found some similarities there. You know, you, you've got a country almost the size of Australia with a population of only 17 million people. So vast, not populated, um, a hell of a frontier place. You know, you've got deserts and, um, you know, sort of the Great Plains sort of set up and then you've got mountainous Alps and snow-capped mountains and, you know, ski fields. If, you know, the Kazakhs wanted to develop ski uh, holidays, they could. Um, Yeah, oh, the potential is amazing. Well, during the Soviet Union, uh, Kazakhstan was – it was the beef-producing state of of the Soviet Union. So there was a lot of remnants from the the old days there of, you know, old – um, cattle farms. Uh, weirdly enough, one of the, you know, so I, sorry, we'll go back a step. So I did that little uh, stint. I think not long after we bumped into each other in New Orleans because I'd just been working in Alaska, and then out of the blue, you know, they've gone, oh, would you want to return and be? You know, I think I was twenty eight at the time. Um, would you want to be the uh, station manager and the the head veterinarian um, of this farm? So you know, a couple of months later, I find myself back there, but. You know, we had 17,000 hectares of virgin land, no fences, nothing. I think only a 1,000 were fenced off. Uh, you know, there's no elders, no, no landmark just down the road to go and, you know, grab some, some barbed wire and steel pickets. Uh, you know, you had to import it all from Russia or China and, you know, it was just, it was, it was a nightmare. So we spent, um, you know, I got over there for my second stint. Um, the cattle had been sort of hose, uh, housed up for the winter. Uh, they were pretty underweight. Um, there hadn't been much sort of vaccination or health programs done. So, you know, we had these little cows calving that, you know, hadn't had their um, pre-calving vaccine sorted. Uh, nutrition was a bit, you know, not great. Um, and I was like, right, uh, the snow's melted. Let's swing the gates and go driving for a couple of months up in the mountains. So uh, they call it JLO in Kazakh, and that means mountain pasture. So we rode out and you'd see little, you know, Angus heifers disappear in this herbage and, and grass. And, you know, we were doing some ballpark uh, weights on a very basic weigh bridge that we had. Um, and we estimated these little girls were putting on, you know, 700 grams to 1.2 kilos per day. So there was a lot of compensatory growth there, don't get me wrong, but but this place could perform and we could see why, you know, in the olden days uh, they'd selected this area to be the bread and, and meat basket of the Soviet Union. So if it had been a meat-producing region at some point in time, why now or in 2017 did they need to be shipping in Australian cattle and Australian people to be kind of building up their beef industry? Well, Kazakhstan had gone through, you know, a a gas and an oil boom, you know, a resources boom. There was a lot of affluence there, mind you, you know, 
you could still see Maseratis driving around the streets of Almaty and then drive 10 minutes outside and, you know, there'd be a donkey pulling a, an old chassis of a larder car down the road. Like, yeah, it was quite, you know, polarising to see, you know, the wealth distribution not permeating through everyone at that stage. But, uh, you know, the Kazakhs had saying, well, you know, we have this investment, we have money coming in with our oil and gas boom, we're going to invest that in agriculture. So there'd been some Australians up, um, some friends of mine, the Creeks, they'd been up on a uh, a really big cattle property um, up on the Russian uh, Kazakhstan border up in the north. Um, so they'd been there a couple of years prior to me. So, yeah, there'd been big head waves, you know, uh, of cattle and Australian influence in the in the uh, the Kazakh area, there'd been Americans going there as well. But you know, I'd been involved in some cattle projects in Russia and Kazakhstan before, and you know, because of the old war, there was uh, sorry, the Cold War. Uh, the Americans and the the Russians and the Kazakhs used to bun heads a bit. You know, there were still sour grapes about you know, oh well, we you, we put a man in space first, but you know, uh, you guys won the Cold War, and we're yeah, there was always – but as an Australian, it was like, oh, well, who cares? You know, you were just this little guy down the south. We didn't really care about you. So that really worked in our favour. Um, but, yeah, you know, it was interesting to see uh, Kazakhstan, unlike other countries, have gone through, a, a, you know, a resources boom going, right, we're going to invest that in our primary industries, um, education. Yeah, they really started pouring it uh, – into their schools and farming. So so is this coming from the government then or is this private industry that's making this investment? Uh, there was a lot of government in, uh, investment, 100%. Uh, the guy that I ended up working for, um, he'd been in oil and gas uh, for a while. So he saw the market that, um, you know, an affluent city like Almaty, you know, this lady decked out in Prada would step out of her, you know, Mercedes or Lamborghini down at the Green Bazaar um, which was a marketplace in Albati, and there was a wet market, and she would go and buy steak, and I made her just sort of get a, a leg and cut it up with a, a a tomahawk and a machete on a old tree stump, and it was like, no, 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 we need to, um, we need to, you know, do like a steak steakhouse and and be able to sell to these people, you know, beef that's got some re- rapport and reputation behind it. So that was his vision and, you know, after I left, they still had a long way to go but they've, they've already started pulling it off and they've done they've done quite well. So when you first landed in Kazakhstan, what was your impression of the place and what was your experience? Uh, it was cold. Um, my first, first time I got there, it was middle of winter and um, the airport was quite warm and I remember stepping out and just that cold air hitting, you know, your little alveola in your lungs and you're just like, oh, gosh, it's... Uh, a little bit different to what I'd been seeing in Pakistan. Um, yeah, and these sort of Kazakh gentlemen met me all in their black jackets and their big black SUV, and I was like, well, um, am I going to get my kneecap smashed in? Am I getting jumped here, or are these the guys? So anyway, there was a big warm embrace, and, you know, there was shaking of hands, and, you know, oh, it's so good to have you. And um, we tore out there. Oh, I just, yeah, I'd probably, you know, obviously Borat had, um, you know, it was a satirical uh, film piece, but uh, it definitely um, made Kazakhstan the, the underdog. I, I soon saw the potential of this place and, you know, uh, an investor's playground in these kind of things, especially agriculture. All right. So you get in this, all these big black cars. Well, yes. I'm guessing you only got into one of yep. them. And you go straight out to the farm. Yep. Is it straight, straight into business? Yep. No, we tear out there like I landed late afternoon. We have a quick meal in El Marty and, um, yeah, we rip out to this farm in the middle of the night. Like we got there at maybe midnight, like pitch black, snow falling, freezing cold, and they're like, oh, we'll put you in your 
in your accommodation. So I'm in this little place with the heater on and like, Jesus, like, what have, like, I don't even know where I am. I wouldn't even know which direction we'd gone. We'd gone out in the pitch black at night in a snowstorm. In the morning, I wake up and there's this beautiful valley and, you know, snow and blue skies. And it's just like, wow, this place, this place is amazing. It was really cool. You know, it had almost, uh, challenged some of the, uh, scenery that you'd see in Wyoming or Colorado. You know, it's very, very pretty. Um, and then obviously when I went back, uh, many months later to see that snow melt and to see that, um, that pasture and that, uh, undulant sky- skyline, it was just, yeah, it was unbelievable. I feel like, um, from, from my memory, from the stories you wrote for us, there were some pictures of you wearing more, I suppose, local attire. Like I know <laughs> there's, I've, I've just found a picture of you wearing very Australian, like you're in jeans and a black jacket and a beanie in the yeah. snow. But I feel like I've seen a picture of you in a big fur or am I just going mad? No, no, we, um, cause obviously it's been a lot of time in Kyrgyzstan, uh, uh, to make us, uh, uh, Tajikistan and, uh, and Mongolia. So I had a sort of few bits and drabs from, uh, different places. So I had some Mongolian tunics, but I had to be very careful wearing that in Kazakhstan because obviously Chengiz Khan had, uh, marched in there, you know, a while ago and sort of, yeah, uh, uh, taken over a fair bit of Kazakhstan. So one of my, one of my translators was very proud to say he was like, see how I'm taller. Pardon me, I'm, I'm six foot two and I have green eyes. He's like, yeah, the Mongolians never, we pulled them up. They never got their genetic influence into our, into our tribes over in the, uh, over in the West. So he was quite proud of that to say, no, nah, no, nah, we, we blocked them. So I had to be a little bit careful not to make a cultural faux pas. But, um, Kazakhstan is, uh, got one of the highest densities of, uh, wolf populations in, um, in the world. So, uh, yeah, I sported a lovely, um, wolf fur coat, um, as, as it went back into winter. So, and man, you'd wear that thing around and the Kazakhs are just like, man, you're, you know, that's boss man. You know, that was some major respect there. So I had my, you know, my jeans on, my knee high, um, Australian light horse, uh, boots and, um, and a fur coat. And, uh, yeah, it was, yeah, it was magical. It's grand. How do you go about knowing what the cultural sensitivities are in a country when, say, your only cultural reference point is the movie Borat? <laughs> like, did you have to do a lot of pre-reading or had you been – is it because you'd been in neighbouring countries before you kind of picked up – I mean, if I went to Kazakhstan tomorrow, I wouldn't know any of this stuff you just said. Mm. In saying that, though, that makes me sound really ditzy and blonde. No. But no. I do know things about other countries, but I wouldn't know what, you know – what could be quite offensive. Oh, I, I only know these things as a sequali of being there. You know, you sort of picked it as up. a what? Sequali, uh, like a sequel, a sequali. <laughs> um, yeah, it's like a, a veterinary term, I think, you know. Oh, the scarring is a sequali to the wound, uh, S-E-Q-U-A-L-A-E, sequali. One of my favourite words. One yeah, of. Yeah, I'm just going to uh, smile and love that. Um, but, yeah, uh, you know, a lot of this stuff is sort of just a sequali of being there and um, – I don't know, like, yeah, on reflection, um, I think it just develops your intuition as well. Like, you know, I speak, I used to speak a lot more Russian. Um, yeah, um, uh, I didn't speak much Kazakh. It's more Turkish sort of based language. Um, I really struggled with picking it up, but. I don't know, like, I think it's just, um, you know, being off your dunghill, being in a place where you're like, man, I'm the only white guy here, I'm the only Westerner, um, I do not understand what I, you know, I don't know what's being said, but I know I'm being spoke about. Uh, you're just that sixth sense that you're just like, I just did something that wasn't wasn't good. 
So, like you know, what? Oh, like, like, you know, no. wearing your gloves inside was one where I was like, it was freezing cold, but they're like, no, you must not wear gloves inside. But because I walked in, I had my gloves on and everyone's just like stopped and looking like, like oh, it's, oh my God. You know, an old Russian folktale, you can't whistle inside. It whistles all your money away. So I walked in, you know, uh, I think I was even whistling the, um, the old army, you know. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, walked inside and they're like, no, no, and just like you could hear a pin drop and I was like, I've done something that isn't okay. And they're like, no, no, Cozzy, you cannot whistle inside. You whistle all the money away. Like, yeah, you know, weird little, um, you know, similar to what we'd see in culture. Like, oh, black cat's bad luck. So yeah, don't put your hat in the bed. Yep. A hundred percent. So yeah, just silly things like that. So, well, not silly things, but yeah, you, you just, I don't know. I think, you know, I'd been privileged to travel so much that, um, yeah, you just sort of you learn to read a room. Yeah, yeah. How did you go with the language barriers? Like, were you provided oh. with a, like a translator? Did they speak English? How did that all come out? Oh, yeah, this was a. It wasn't the first time I'd used translators uh, in the workplace before. Um, but yeah, Kazakhstan was interesting. I had, you know, we had about twenty or thirty blokes working for us, none of whom spoke English. They spoke a little bit of Russian, maybe, and 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 Kazakh. Well, th- this was the dynamic. Um, I think Kazakhstan, and recently they've done their constitution and they do their, um, uh, political readings and stuff in, ca- in their local language, uh, sorry, in their traditional language of Kazakh. It's come back and rather than in Russian, you know, I always felt that it was sort of seen like, oh, you know, Kazakh was the seen as maybe like a, and, and I apologize to any Kazakh listeners out there if I'm, if I'm putting my foot in it, but, um, I felt that, um, you know, speaking Kazakh was, uh, Kazakh was seen as like, oh, a peasant language. Whereas if you spoke Russian, it was, it was European. It was Moscow. It was cool. Um, so my translators, you know, obviously had had access to education. Otherwise, how are you going to lose, learn English? Where do you do that? In the big cities. And Almaty was the big city. So they spoke English and, and, and they spoke Russian, mainly Russian at home. Um, so, you know, our workers, for example, we used to hire sort of Russian because uh, you've got, you know, during the Soviet Union, everyone was was pushed around and you had sort of a massive Russian expat, um, expat community there, you know, Russian Orthodox Christian, or you had Kazakhs that spoke Kazakh and were Muslim. Um, so that was another dynamic that we had to throw in there. So I'd have a, I'd have a translator that had access to education, had been in the city, didn't really speak much Kazakh, spoke Russian and English. So I had to speak English to him and then he'd have to speak Russian to the, the ringers. But if they came from a small, um, village nearby, they probably didn't speak much Russian. So then he had to do his best to try and translate into Kazakh. So it was like this three, four way fold. It was like, you know, Chinese whispers on steroids. You know, I'd say something and it'd just get lost in translation. You'd be standing there and going, that, that totally missed the goalpost. You know, that, that intuition sort of sixth sense development where I'm like, I've communicated this, but yeah, no, that, that, that went over the keeper 100%. So. And, and the biggest, and the reason that we used to, um, hire Kazakh workers, what we found with the Russian guys, they'd get on the piss. So, you know, I remember sending a bloke out to like check a bit of fence, you know, gave him a quad bike, gave him some wire, some pliers, signed him out at nine o'clock in the morning. And he rolled a quad bike drunk of his head at 10.45, 11 o'clock that morning. You know, he'd just gone, oh, I'm not going to check the fences, poked into town, got on the piss with his mate, rolled the quad bike. What made it worse is the boss man was coming out to visit the farm on that day. He saw old mate, a quad bike rolled on its roof and him just beside the road smashing durries and, and, and swigging vodka. And he's like, what the hell are you doing? Cozzy, why is this guy? And I was like, 
mate, like, I'd only just seen him an hour and a half, two hours ago. Like, you know, he'd, uh, he'd done the, done the shifty on me. I can't, I can't police everyone. So, you know, we'd go and hire more Kazakh sort of ringers. A, they're more, um, likely to be literate with stock in a Kazakh sense. They could ride horses, you know, they're a bit more rough and tumble. They came from the villages nearby, so they weren't totally removed uh, from their family and their support networks. And the big thing was they were Muslims, so they didn't drink. So, yeah, we got rid of the drinking uh, drinking at work to a certain extent. Mind you, the Kazakhs will drink something called um, kumis, uh, which is alcoholic horse milk. So they milk the horses, they put it in the barrel, they brew it up. Similar to the, the Mongolians do it as well. They call it erag. The Kazakhs call it kumis. And I remember, like, you know, the Muslim boys would have finished playing, gone to the mosque, and they'd be, like, just smashing the kumis, like, not to get pissed, but just more like, you know, it's just a thing that we do, you know. It's like eating corned beef in camp. I'd be like, oh, no, there's alcohol in that stuff. Like, how do you, you know, you guys don't drink beer or, or vodka, but you're having alcoholic horse milk. And they'd be like, no, 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 this is kumis. It doesn't count. So, <laughs> yeah, it was the only it was the only time that that was sort of, that was sort of allowed. But, you know, during those hotter months in the middle of summer, you know, we do a lot of drafting. I'd really take advantage of the weather and the ability to do a lot of our management stuff, uh, you know, our anti-parasites, dipping um, and, and our vaccines and just, you know, getting these girls fighting fit uh, for all the things coming with summer and then preparing them for the winter. But that hotter period uh, tied up with Ramadan. So, you know, we, it got really hot there. Like in the in the winter, you know, we'd be 20, 25 below. Um, and in summer, like, you know, it would be high 30s, 40s. And like and at altitude as well because we're up in the mountains and the higher you go, the less oxygen. Like I used to get altitude. I remember like riding my horse and just vomiting my guts up because I just, you know, I was hypoxic. I didn't, I wasn't getting enough oxygen to my brain. So, um, and because of that, you just get sunburnt so badly, dry, your lips dry to get dehydrated so easily. Um, and you know, they had this stock camper ringers that the sun had come up and they hadn't drunk any water, eaten any food all day. Um, you know, you'd be pushing cattle somewhere and you'd look around and you'd just see all these horses saddled up, just walking around grazing. And you're like, where, where have all my blokes gone? But they'd all be praying. So. Yeah, it was, you know, it was definitely another dynamic as sort of, you know, the boss man to be like, um, you know, the really um, hardcore uh, guys that were doing Ramadan for their faith, you had to make sure you put them on light duties because there's plenty of times we were pushing cattle through a race and preg testing and uh, and vaccinating and I'd be like, oh, what? And the cattle had stopped and you're like, where's old mate? And he'd just be passed out like on the ground, just ragdolled because he just cooked himself, hadn't eaten or drunk water all day, so... Yeah, that was uh, that was pretty interesting. So it's interesting to hear that you can get heat stroke working cattle in Australia and Kazakhstan. Mm. Like it doesn't 100%. matter where you are. Yeah, and and then you're you're not allowed during Ramadan to even have a drink of water. So we would splash water on their face. These guys would be crook and cooked, and be like, "Oh, maybe." And they're like, "Oh no, I can still work," uh, but they they wouldn't even have a, like a sip of water. They weren't allowed nothing. So yeah, I was like, hats off to these guys. So. I have to ask you, you've referred to them as your Kazakhstan ringers and this is a a large cattle property and it employs a number of people. Yes. In Australia on our large cattle properties, um, often referred to as cattle stations, ringers or cowboys, jackaroos, whatever Mm -hmm. you want to call them, uh, station hands are often young people, traditionally like back in the day, men now, men and and always, I mean, there's always been women around, but now it's, there's a Mm -hmm. lot more girls. It's a a lot more common. Yeah. 
often it's it's a uh, straight out of high school kind of gap year thing, um, maybe into your early 20s. Really, usually then people go on and get a trade or go to uni. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, obviously, because um, there's not, you know, it's like anything, you've got that high, lot higher number of, um, you know, entry-level jobs and then a few people hang around and kind of climb the ranks over the years. What was it like in Kazakhstan? Are these all kids straight out of school kind of on their gap year or are these, you know, 50-year-old men? Who, what's the demographic? Um, it was a real cross-section because, like, a lot of these people, you know, these ringers, they were they were villagers and they were bound to a, a life of subsistence and, you know, sort of poverty, like, you know, whether you were 50 or, or fresh out of school. I had a lot of young fellas working there. Um, we had a lot of older blokes, but they were very stuck in their ways and especially in the old Soviet ways, like, you know, oh, I must put, you know, stump oil on, on, on an aisle soon. You're like, nah, man, like, nah, don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> It's called antibiotics and like, you know, eye patches and medicine. Like, which, I've, I've gone to uni for six years. I think, I think I know not to put the oil yeah, on the sword. And they'd look at you in absolute disgust, but you know, you could reflect on that and go, oh, you know, that's probably another podcast, but I've definitely experienced that in the developed world. Uh, you know, it was interesting to see that regardless of which country, you know, you can't get bloody it, human, bats. They just don't know anything. Yeah, but like human beings, where you know we're almost genetically programmed. If we're not careful, to get stuck in your ways. So that was an interesting thing. I was like, huh, that still happens here. So and then you have these young guys, and they'd be like, you know, I had one guy that's sort of a head stockman, but there was a couple of older blokes that were like, I'm not taking orders off you because I was younger, but like they were, you know, decrepit and could barely get around. So. Yeah, I had a really yeah, I had a really cross section of um of people, but in the end we we stuck with the younger blokes because there was no like age hierarchy. So, you know, they they got on really well. So, we still had a couple of cooks, um, uh, you know, young girls from uh in the villages, but yeah, I, I like the villages because what we could do, you know, they'd do maybe two weeks on and a couple of days off and they, you know, we could like They'd ride their horses, you know, six hours and go home and go to the old thatch-roofed house or wherever their family was and then be like, oh, yeah, cool, I saw my family and then they'd ride back. So that worked really well rather than the guys that, you know, you'd pull them from the other side of the country. But, yeah, they'd just sort of get homesick and be like, oh, this is shit, I want to go back. So, yeah, um, yeah look, it was just really interesting. You know, I was really young at that stage. Uh, you know, 28 and, and working all that and personality clashes and, yeah, all the stuff. Like it was, um yeah, like at the time I was pulling my hair out and going like, you know, I was smoking like a packet of cigarettes a day. Oh, really? I, I don't smoke now, but, yeah, just char through the durries and, um yeah, you're just like, Jesus, what am I doing? But There's just so much going on there because I'm even just thinking from a, um what do they call it, you know, like Western versus Eastern culture and, uh, was it like Indo, like Western culture is very individualistic and, uh, Eastern is like the collective or whatever, you know, like in a, in an Eastern culture, it's all about, um, like yeah. it's not about you as an individual. It's about your family group or whatever. And it's, uh, you know, like that. Whereas we're all like in Western society, we're all like, it's all yeah. about me, me, me. So even just dealing with those dynamics of, how they are and how they interact with their family and what family mm. means to them. And mm. you being able to be on the other side of the world, not saying that family is not important to you, but being able to go and be away from family and do things. But that might be very different for people mm. in that country. And so trying to. And, and to further ex- extrapolate on, on your narrative there, like, um, the Soviet Union had taught people like, you do not put your neck out. And if you, 
you know, are in a point of making decision-making without, you know, checking with your superiors and all this kind of stuff, you might find yourself with a Kalashnikov round to the back of the head. Like, you know, there was a lot like when something went wrong, they're like, oh, no, you know, Cosy was the one that signed it off and that, you know, yada, yada. Like, um, I don't, you know, there's probably on a side topic for anyone that's seen um, Stalin's Death, you know, and it's, oh, it's a, you know, it was a satirical comedial piece. It was put out a couple of years ago about, you know, uh, Stalin's death and it was quite funny, but you know, you'd sort of see these weird dynamics and people just, you know, oh, the guards have seen this, shoot them and, you know, like everyone covering their, pardon me, covering their butt and stuff. Like, I experienced, like, we didn't shoot anyone, but like, yeah, there was this hesitation to go like, you know, they'd see the fence broken and the cows walking out, but they'd be like, oh, I better check with Cozzy if it's okay to fix the fence and put them back in rather than doing that because, you know, you've been taught if they went and did that and then they spooked and more cattle got out, well, why did you take the initiative? You've messed up, you know, you're going to get in, you know, there's going to be reprimand. So there was a there's a cultural aspect to that as well, you know, very, very, very micromanaged. Yeah, I was just about to say it sounds yep. like you're not – it's not promoted to think for yourself. No. It's, it's sort of like that old school – um you know, they say the classic design of the education system is to pump out factory workers, yep. like just go yep. in, learn something, Toe the party wrote, line, wrote, learn it, and then do it as do as yep. you're told, and not actually kind of yep. think outside the yep. box. And well, you know, you look at the Russian Revolution and everything that happened. You know, those people that thought, you know, the poets, the people that thought outside the box, and that like you got shot or you you legged it, you got out of there. So, you know, um, yeah, so. It was an interesting thing, you know. It's funny. I hadn't really thought about it till you brought it up. And I was like, oh yeah, I do remember that. Like, you know, there's this look of confusion and panic on their face. I'm like, well, you're you're the head stockman, you know. You can make decisions if you want, and just let me know what's happened. You know, like you need to think on the spot rather than letting them fester because oh, I, you know, because he wasn't in phone reception for ten hours because we're in the middle of Kazakhstan and there's just no phone or well, the two ways didn't didn't you know reach so. Yeah, you know, and just it was really rewarding watching those young fellas sort of, you know, get some confidence and go like, if I make a decision and it goes well, I get rewarded, and if it doesn't, but I showed some initiative and go, oh, I tried this, and you know, you know, oh, the you know the cattle got out, and I tried my best, and maybe we lost a calf. We're like, mate, you did you, you did your best. Rather than losing the whole mob, you lost one calf. That's not the end of the world. I'm not going to punish you for that. So. Yeah, that was uh, yeah, that was definitely an interesting thing. Must have been a bloody big learning curve for you as well. It's one thing to be a vet and to be a an accomplished, um, you know, capable like vet in in that practice in veterinary science, yeah. but then you're managing people as well, and that's a whole different oh, shit man. show. Hundred <laughs> percent, you know, like uh, you know, my family. You know, had have cattle stations in northern Queensland and, you know, I was like, well, this is a, you know, not not just a chance to grow myself but, yeah, for that managerial, you know, like, yes, you'd be at the coalface teaching everyone, you know, how to dehorn, how to brand, how to put how to put an ear tag in. I remember I delegated that to them to go like, oh, can you, Mark, put a management tag in and, um, and uh, you know, mark the calves. Um, and I came back, like, I'd given them five hours and, like, six were done. I was like, oh crap, I've got to show them how to use pliers and all this stuff and yada yada and, 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 and stuff like that. But yeah, that manager, you know, like, yes, you are at the coalface, but you sit behind the desk. And, uh, yeah, it was a great thing, um, you know, as a, as a 28 year old to go, um, yeah, to be, to be put in that position, you know, and not to sweat the small stuff and go like, 
you know, I think sometimes, uh, well, my experience, you know, in, in small business or a family-run property or that, it, it's in a mycoplasm where, you know, I can control everything, I do everything and, you know, uh, control and, and sometimes letting go of that control can be a really confronting thing. And I think for me that's helped, helped me shed that sort of uh, exoskeleton per se um, to be like, you know, getting the job done, prioritising what needed to be doing and not sweating the small stuff because, you know, in reality, we had a, a small corral made out of panels. We'd put the cattle in there every night. We'd sleep in these old UN tents and these old um, Russian army officer trailers um, every night and, uh, you know, you just had to make sure that we didn't lose the whole bloody lot, you know, into another country, you know. Um, weirdly enough, I think I'm one of the few people to go, oh, yeah, some cattle just wandered off from the group and we had to ride across an international border to get them back. So, <laughs> you know, another weird clay to find. But, you know, like it was like, oh, you know, there might be a bit of a leaky tap over there, but, like, let's make sure that the wolves don't slip in and, and kill all the calves overnight or, you know, a big snowstorm comes in or a big thunderstorm and the cattle had legged. So, you know, to build that picture, um, you know, we went right up. We were above probably 3,000 metres above sea level in the mountains where the really good pasture and I was like, let's start up there and we'll slowly graze an area and then we'll slowly migrate down the valleys. So we'd have two sort of mountains each side and we'd use that as, you know, they were steep but the cattle couldn't still walk up them. Um, but they sort of acted as like, what would you say, um, bump rallies on a, you know, when you're 10-pin bowling and you put the little bumper rails down the gutters, you know, that was sort of like what these mountains were. Let's sort of guide the cattle that they can only walk up and down the, the valley um, when they, when they graze. So, and we'd have our little corral and then we'd sort of graze, not flog a place. We go, okay, the pasture's, you know, starting to get eaten out. So let's move, pack all the horses, all the trailers, all their little tents up and the panels, go down the valley and reset up again. Um, and the other good thing about having all the valleys as well, uh, the, the mountains, you could put the ringers on there with their little eagles on their arms and a two-way and a rifle and go like, right, you know, patrol and keep an eye on the calves, the cattle, but also for wolves. They, and, and that was the best thing about these, you know, Kazakh sort of bushfellas. They, you know, that was in their veins. They love that shit. They're like, yeah, I'm just sitting out in a mountain with my eagle on my arm, with my horse, you know, smoking a durry, like pretty, you know, I'm getting paid to, live out in the bush and I love it. You know, I've got food paid for, I've got accommodation. Like, it was a sweet gig for them. They absolutely loved it. Oh, I loved it. It was great. Tell me about the eagles on the arms because I'm dying. Right so, now. you know, back to, you know, back to the wolves things. That was a big, you know, Australia, we've got wild dogs, dingoes. Well, the wolves, you know, quite prominent in, um, in, in Kazakhstan and make short work on a little Angus calf. So, uh, yeah, literally, you know, the guys will walk around with a, with an eagle on their arm and, um, say a, uh, say a wolf comes in, boom, this little, this little eagle would get deployed up into the sky like a javelin missile and it goes straight up and it'd sit there, circle, 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 fold in the wings and just go down and literally just harpoon these things. And especially if you had a couple of eagles, they'd just literally bail these things up and just get the talons in and peg what? the shit out of it. You know, like, um, and, and use it as a defense or the wolves would just see those, those eagles starting the circle and they'd leg it. They'd so be like, this isn't worth it. Would the eagles see the wolves and jump up and like fly and like alert people to them? Or did the guy on the horseback see the wolf and be like, tap the eagle and be like, oi, go get yeah, it? Yeah. They, tr- they train their, e- there was a That's- facility between our farm and, and my translators and boys were very proud to point it out. And we even went in there. There was an eagle training, um, academy. 
So what? I've got a photo on my Instagram there. There's a heap of guys in the back of a van with all the eagles with the hoods on, and they were driving in there. And yeah, they they teach them how to battle the wolves. So like these these eagles get deployed not to alert people that the wolf is there. They're like, my job is to go in there and you know pull the mitts off and go toe to toe with these things and and belt the shit out of them. That- and then it'd get to a point where they're just mobbing it. Like I saw a lot of um, footage of. Um, you know, the guys that, you know, they were wolf trackers, like old traditional Kazakh way. And yeah, the wolves would get them and they'd bail the wolf up and they'd go in and, you know, stick it, uh, stick it with a small blade in, in, in the brain stem and then they'd skin it and use it for warmth and the, for their families. And, um, you know, uh, sometimes they'd eat wolf meat. Yeah. Oh, that was the other thing. If I got the flu, um, yeah, the Kazakh like, oh, you must. Well, get you some dog meat and uh, you eat that and it'll make you nice. You'll have a big sweat at night from the dog meat. It's real good for you and you'll sweat all the, all the flu out. And I was like, hmm, nah, I'm probably not going to do that. Why so I stick with some paracetamol. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Then again, I did wake up and one of the, um, old, uh, Kazakh ladies had cut an onion, um, and put it at the head of my bed and one underneath the bed. Old, old tradition. Oh, the onion will take all the badness out of the room. I was just like, oh. mate, it's just, it just smells like onion and my eyes are, are watering. So. Um, yeah, like I was just, yeah, I was comatose in a, in a, in a fever and yeah, woke up with some chopped onion all around my room. So I just can't believe that they had like attack eagles. I'm just, I'm thinking not that long ago, uh, on the show, we, I had, um, Blythe Cowan on, who's done a lot of work in live export mm-hmm. and she has some pasture aged chickens at the moment and she's got these big white Marama dogs yeah. that live out with her chickens. So yep. the dogs are there to guard the chickens. Yep. And they're big dogs. They're kind of like wolf I size. vaccinated one today in the clinic. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. And now this is like the opposite. It's like a chicken-sized bird, these eagles. Or they, I'm sure they're probably bigger than a chicken, but they're there to yeah. like have a go at something the size of, of yeah, the a, a medium marama. to large size. Yeah, 100%. That's but they, so but these wild. things are, you know, they, that's where they train the eagles and, you know, the eagles attack is literally just to pounce. Like literally they just fold the wings in and just, Javelin like hurdle themselves down before the ground and then last minute sort of spread the wings and just nail these things with great force. It was, yeah, it's impressive to see. Um, you know, like during my time, I had to go and, um, renew my Kazakh visa and I, I snuck into Kyrgyzstan for a couple of days and they did the world nomad game. So, you know, you'd have Afghanistan and Kazakhstan and Georgia and Russia and Ukraine and all the, you know, weird and wonderful, um, e-spot companies that get together and, you know, like play Buskashi, you know, the headless goat. Polo, you know. I'm yeah. sorry, what? <laughs> yeah, for all the uh, Rambo fans out there, there's a Rambo movie when the Soviets, uh, he's out with the Mujahideen in Afghanistan and they're playing the headless goat policy. You, get a, you know, I, I did a tour of Afghanistan, not as a soldier, as a vet. Um, and yeah, they get a goat and they, you know, point it to Allah and only a certain man can do it and they say a prayer and they slit its throat and then they cut its head off and then they throw the body out on a field. And you ride it on your horse and you like sort of link your, f- I, I played it a few times and you link your foot under a stirrup leather and, and the knee pad or pummel or whatever you call it in their designer saddle. And you literally pick the goat carcass up off the ground, fully mounted. Like it's a, it's a massive skill to be able to master. I, I, I struggle with it. I couldn't, I wasn't very good at it. And then like everyone's punching you, whipping you, horses are kicking you and kicking each other. You battle over this sheep and then you gallop off once you win it. You've got to run around a pile of rocks. It might be a hundred, 150 meters away and you ride back and you drop it in a, a ring of rocks. That's a goal. So when you just said headless goat polo, yeah, I yeah. was like, I have a feeling you're meaning that in a literal sense. And yeah. you were. Yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. In Afghanistan, they call it Buskashi. In Kazakhstan and Tajikistan, other places, Kokpa. 
so yeah, we we you know that was a weekend thing on the on the stock camp. You know, like oh yeah, we'll have a you know we'll have a bit of a, a weekend off, a slow day, and they'd be like oh Cosy, you know, come play some cockpa. And I'd, you know, jump on my pony and ride on down and oh my God. have a, you know, play 15 minutes and be like, right, oh boys, I'm going to smash all my teeth out in a minute and I'll, I'll just sit on the sideline and pretend I'd pulled a, pulled a groin muscle. And that, um, yeah, no, nah, some, some wild shit. I'll say you that much, but you know, uh, yeah, the world nomad, like horseback archery, like all these weird and wonderful competitions. Um, I remember t- you, you put photos in of horseback wrestling. Yep, I remember that was you, another one. Yeah. I remember yep. you, um, riding about that. I just don't know if you wrote about the headless. Po- goat polo. I'm sure I wouldn't forget something like that. Yeah, it's- no, it's 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 mental, and that's like the prized prized thing at the World Nomad Games. There's, but yeah, there's ho- horseback uh, archery. But this was a weird tangent. I was going down. You would compete like uh, who had the best eagles. So they'd get an old wolf um, fur on a rope, gallop a horse off, dragging it, and old mate would gallop off after his horse behind it. You know, say thirty, forty meters, deploy his eagle. The eagle would go up, flap, 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 chase after this um, this scalp that was getting dragged along the ground, and then just nail it. So yeah, and they were like, you know, and they're like, well, when we'd be pursuing a wolf that was, you know, attacking the family when they were living in yurts and still do, or our horses or our um, livestock, yeah, we'd we'd gallop these things down, and the eagles would get deployed at a gallop to nail a wolf. That was also at a gallop. So they had a competition, obviously not with live wolves because, you know, there's some wild stuff that happened, but even that was always like, oh, getting ethics and, and welfare approval even there, you know, probably not great. But, uh, hence why they dragged the old fur along on the ground. But, yeah, you know, and they'd be like, oh, well, this year's winner, the best the best ones from Kyrgyzstan, you know, he's he's the best. And and I remember chatting to him via translator and like, no, like this is how we train, this is how we train them to do it. So, yeah, it was it was phenomenal to see. Do you know much about the wolves in Kazakhstan? Because I'm just wondering, so in Australia, obviously dingoes are quite a a divisive topic uh, or polarising topic Mm -hmm. and there's some people that are, well, dingoes slash wild dogs, which, again, that in itself is a a topic, whether or not wild dogs even exist when, you know, anyway, won't go down that rabbit hole. But, you know, we've kind of got the two camps of, um, you know, we need to control them, get rid of them, not have them. Um, fence them out, shoot them out, hunt them out, whatever you call it, and then know they've got a place in the ecosystem. I know when I worked on a ranch in Wyoming, it hadn't been that long since they'd re, not they, but in America, the parks around it had reintroduced wolves. Um, mm-hmm. like I think they'd probably been hunted out for however many years and they yep. were starting to reintroduce them. And there were a lot of unhappy ranchers saying, you know, but then it's same in America. There's some people like, no, like it's okay to have a few yeah. and whatnot. What about in Kazakhstan? Because obviously I don't know if cattle are native to Kazakhstan, but I'm guessing the wolves were. And how did that whole balance and how did that all play out? And what was the their perspective over there? Yeah. Um, well, yeah, back to the cattle thing. Not really native. There was cattle there, but not, not like we see here. So a lot of subsistence farming. So, you know, economically, do we have these big um, investments, you know, thousands head of cattle and massive losses? Not really. You know, it was a bloke that had a little bit of a, you know, thatch roof. and Doesn't that make it all the more valuable to him though? Exactly, exactly. So, you know, he was sort of patrolling a, a, a little area in his part rather than like, you know, expansive areas where every everything had to be, you know, nuked and, and killed. So it was sort of, you know, there was, I guess, enclaves that the wolves could breed up or, 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 um, or hide, you know, it wasn't just everywhere. It was just, you know, if they came close to villages or little farms, 
you know, that was the only sort of human-animal conflict. Uh, rhetorically, you know, talking to the Kazakhs there, they said, look, you know, yes, they introduced me to a, a local guy and, you know, he was like, oh, I've got over, well, I think it was 200 or 300 scalps for the year. And he was like, yep, I've, I've never noticed, you know, a, a shortage of wolves, you know, and they said that during uh, the Soviet Union there was a lot of scalps and bounties on it that their numbers may have been um, a little bit more controlled, but since that time, you know, they'd, they'd, they'd flourished again, according to the guy. I, I haven't seen the literature and, you know, the data on it to be uh, confirmed. Now, you know, probably another tension there. Kazakhstan and Australia wasn't the first time that we'd we'd traded livestock. You know, we'd sent um, tens of thousands of uh, merino sheep over there in the seventies. So that was one time where it was like, well, we will protect against the wolves. So um, yeah, I don't know. They just sort of said like, well, you know, look at all that pasture that there's no cattle on, there's no fences, there's nothing there. Well, the wolves go up there and hide, and they breed up, and that's their little place. And you know, unless you really go out of your way, human-animal conflict and interaction isn't going to happen. It's just if they venture down here, that's when it, that's when the mitts are off and that's where we have to protect the fort. So um, I think that may be the dynamic that's a little bit different to, say, the United States or, or Australia, for example. So um, from all, all accounts, I couldn't say that, you know, the wolves were being threatened or the ecosystem was looking at being turned on its head because... So much subsistence agriculture over there. What were the other animals that you were sharing the landscape with? So you had your cattle out in the pastures or in the mountains and the valleys. There's the wolves. There's obviously the yep. really cool eagles. Yep. Um, Vultures. Yep. Yeah. What, was there anything else? Um, so say like, again, when I was on that place in Wyoming, we had um, antelope, elk. Oh, there were some cougars, bears. I only saw <laughs> one of them once. Um, and something else, antelope, elk, and oh, one of those other little once. Oh dear. No. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so what, like, I'm just wondering what the wolves ate and like, what else did you, was there anything else that you, that was competing for the race, like the pasture resource? Competing for the resource. Uh, there were things there, but like that country is some of the, the best country I've probably ever seen in my work, in my life. You know, like it just, it just had snow melt and great soil and just, you know, like it did take a lot to go, okay, we're going to see overgrazing and this collapsing. Um, uh, areas near the villages was a bit different because obviously subsistence, you yard your cow up in the barn and she walks only a couple of k's and back and she's done that for, you know, they've done that for decades and decades. So, you know, the bit, the closer you got to a village, the more clapped out the, the pastures looked. Um, but yeah, we had camels, um, cause you know, Kazakhstan had some pretty open deserts. Uh, yes, yeah, so you'd see camels every now and again, uh, the two humped ones. Um, I'd heard reports of bears, never saw them. Uh, horses. Horses was the big one. So if you go to a supermarket in Kazakhstan, you can buy canned horse meat. You know, you got your bully beef, your spam, and a can with a horse on it saying, you know, horse meat. Um, uh, there's a traditional thing, like some of the Kazakh food was a bit hair going, but there was a meal I loved called shashlik. So I saw like this big skewer sword that they'd thread this marinated meat on and cook it over coals. Delicious. And a lot of the time it was horse meat. So like our neighbors, for example, they, um, you know, I'd drive my horse through, you know, mobs of hundreds, thousands of horses just roaming around and, uh, you know, they, I'd be like, so what's, um, you know, what's the purpose of these horses? And the guys would be like, they're, they're for eating. Yeah, yeah, like we, we love it. So they used to export horse meat to, um, uh, to Europe, you know, France, Italy, uh, places like that. And, and the colloquialism, the joke was, you know, 
a, a Kazakh woman wants to meet um, a knight that's riding upon, upon a horse uh, because they've got something to eat afterwards, <laughs> after the wedding. Yeah, yeah. They used to tell me that and be like, that's how it translates from English from Kazakh and all laugh and be like, ha, ha, ha. But seriously, no, like that was the delicacy, you know. So that was a weird dynamic that, you know, the guys were, you know, well, why do I want to buy this hamburger and steak? Like, this sounds very American and white, man. Like, I love eating some horse and a stick. You know, I remember once we were mastering and a horse pummeled over a cliff with one of my ringers on it because the cattle had stampeded. A story for another day. And um, I sort of watched this guy disappear over a cliff. And I was like, oh, shit, he's probably dead. Um, anyway, we sort of, you know, it got dark and we walked the cattle back and sort of sitting there and old mate leaves this horse down, you know, limping, leg flapping in the breeze. like, Doc, you fix. I was like, mate, that's a compound fracture of the cannon. Like, this thing's cooked. I was like, look, I'll, you know, I'll go find a rifle and we'll euthanize it. Like, there's no fixing this. And they're like, yeah, yeah, no worries. So anyway, I went and looked for a gun, couldn't find one, came out and had already done a bush kill. So, you know, skinned it, you know, like you do out in the bush, a bush killer, like, you know, skin the horse, the, the. How'd they kill the horse though? Just let it strike and, you know, started skinning it and had the skin down on the ground as like a tablecloth, like you do in a bush, bush kill and all the meat and they'd cut it up and the tractor man had somehow through the bush telegraph heard, like, it was like, you know, Spider-Man senses. I can hear a horse being, um. I can hear the blood rushing out of its And there's the next minute the hay tractors turn up with the spokes and they've got quarters hanging up on it and they're just like euphoric, like yes, this is amazing. Anyway, yeah, so we just, you know, they they cured it and dried it, and we sort of had a bit of a meat room, and then they just sort of salt the meat and throw a bit of a canvas strap over it, and uh, sorry, canvas fly, and be like, oh, and we just ate horse meat then for the next couple of weeks. Yeah, that was like the biggest feat. See, I just find it fascinating. I know, I think probably years ago, and the idea of eating a horse or a dog or anything was first, you know, the first crossed my mind. I was like, oh, that's your what? But really, what? we consider normal like and what is yeah. okay okay to eat is all just cultural oh, it's like there's no yeah, yeah, yeah it's totally like if you were raised somewhere that eating horses is normal then that's you know whereas here like because culturally for us whatever they're like our best friends and our companions or yeah. well you know it's all so i don't um well i probably wouldn't i mean i might try, i probably would try it. i remember i want to say like maybe not even 10 years ago in wa they there was something and they were, they started putting it in butchers and there were like a few butchers looking for horses. And, but I think for me at that point in time, like they were just looking for like any old horse. And I was like, yeah. um, well, with a cow, like we put however many decades or centuries of like breeding into making a meat cow, like versus a dairy cow, whatever. I was like, I don't want to just go eat some like off the track thoroughbred. Like if you're going <laughs> to, if I'm going to eat a horse, I want it to be like the Angus of horses, you know, I don't want just some like Shetland pony that's. Well, then you'd love Kazakhstan because they bred, they were like, like, this is what we did before yeah. cattle ever turned up here. We bred the we bred right. the Charolais horse. Where are they in relation to Mongolia again? So you've got Mongolia. So Mongolia and Kazakhstan actually don't have a physical border, but they're separated by about 50 kilometres. So Mongolia, you know, you've got China to the south and Russia to the north. Literally, it's like a big, mm. it's like a, um, you know, a teardrop, a sort of a, uh, an elliptical sort of eye. I'm going to pull up Google Maps. Uh, yeah, yeah, okay. like Mongolia. So, you know, it's sort of this elongated elliptical country. 
then to the west. You, so to get from Mongolia, you've got to drive back into China or up into Russia, and then oh. and then into Kazakhstan. So Kazakhstan, um, you've got Russia to the north, uh, oh, Kyrgyzstan to the they, south, and China to the east. Very very close to sharing a border, but they don't. Yeah, no, no, they actually don't touch. So because no. um, I just remember that the like the first horse in the world or whatever the Shavalsky came from Mongolia. Yeah. Yep. Well, was, yeah, yeah. Or, or that area, yeah. Yeah, so, I remember doing an assignment on it in year nine. Yeah. Well, see, I thought I'm fancy because I call it like Shalaski. I feel like I heard that on YouTube or something, but it's spelt like P-R-E-Z. Yeah. So I'm always like, and then It's Pazalski. not very phonetic, no. No, and it makes me think of that movie Monsters, Inc. when she's like, Mike Wazowski. There you go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Weirdly the- enough, um, yeah, I remember looking at those horses because they were getting poached in the Chernobyl Ground Zero Zone in, in, in Ukraine. You know, obviously Chernobyl had the meltdown in 86, in April 86, the infamous nuclear power plant that melted down and they told everyone to go away, like you could not return. Um, and yeah, the Prowelski horses, um, sort of flourished there as, as well as many other series, so, um, as species. So yeah, that, but they were getting poached and sort of, you know, Ooh, I don't know um, if I'd want like a radioactive horse. Well, you know, some people have been living. Well, you know, we look at the re- recent Russian conflict, and the soldiers were, you know, digging foxholes and sandbags to fortify around Chernobyl, the old nuclear power plant, and yeah. they all got sick. They they were like, "You've probably exposed yourself to all this like yeah. radioactive contaminated stuff." But anyway, yeah, the Probelsky horses made a um a fantastic. Uh, it's a it's a little enclave that it's been able to flourish in, and um. It was something I was inquiring about because they were like, oh, yeah, we're looking at doing a like biological study and having a vet to dart and sedate and collar these animals and sort of understand them a little bit more and protect them. So maybe a project for another day. Oh, it's wild. Anyway, that was a tangent. But um, no, I just, it's all just the experiences that you've had are just oh, and, phenomenal. And, and Kazakhstan, like, you know, we, we had farms like this. You've got the Baikonur Cosmic Center, you know, where they launched the Soyuz ro- um, Russian uh, rockets into space. Um, so, you know, if you want to go to the Mir space station, you can pay an exorbitant amount of money and, and jump, go to Kazakhstan to Baikonur and jump in a Soyuz rocket and get launched uh, into space. That's where it happens in Kazakhstan. So when I was in Kazakhstan, they had a space rocket return and crash land like a couple hundred no- miles north of us because, as we said, massive landlocked country, no population. So this little pot, this pod came back and there was an American, a um, Russian and a British birth. Uh, Do, were they alive? Yeah, yeah, they were all oh, alive. So and it, it was landed like this, it didn't like crash, crash? No, 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 like the little, you know, the little pod and then the parachute came out and it landed oh in God. Kazakhstan. And, yeah, so... It's weird, like Russia's got this weird agreement with Kazakhstan around Baikonur that it's it's sovereign to Russia. Like you kind of need a Russian visa to go in there. But I was I ran out of time, but I applied. But I ran out. I didn't give them enough notice. You can go and meet the astronauts and and watch the rocket get launched from from Baikonur. So yeah, you know, it's a um, yeah, it's just such a fascinating like all those countries. You know, they're really underrated and um, you know reasonably safe and. Yeah, I'm going to need some connections here. I really want to go mustering in Kazakhstan now. Yeah, yeah. Well, as uh, oh, I don't know about after COVID, but um, uh, I'm triple vaxxed. I'm all right. Um, yeah, but I don't know who's over there anymore or what's going. No. But I'm sure we'd be able to go to going to be able to dig up stuff. But I think yeah, these countries that um, yeah, there's massive opportunities there. You know, in agriculture to get abroad and you know. Like that, that was, that was seven months of my life that we've narrated probably 15% of it. Like I've probably forgotten so much already, but 
Yeah, like I recommend it to anyone that, um, you know, Australia's a great place. I love it. It's always home. I love coming back, but there's some great crazy stuff to go and see abroad. Well, I know you just said you'd narrated about 15% and probably forgot a few things. Luckily, I've got a few notes written uh, down. Here we go. But one thing I, I have written down that we haven't spoken about is the the vehicles that the uh, – oh. like. <laughs> Oh, there we the go. The tanks. Yeah, yeah, that's right. We had a little um, uh, armoured personnel carrier um, that, yeah, like, Jesus, I would not like to have measured the carbon monoxide that was in the cabin of that. But, yeah, because of the, you know, undulant terrain, it was quite mountainous. Um, yeah, we had these little uh, caterpillar track things that you'd put everyone in the back and all the fencing gear and you'd march up the hill and, and those things were great. All our water trucks and our uh, stock trucks were old camas trucks um, and orals. Uh, so they were old Russian uh, military trucks, you know, very like it's funny when I watch the uh, Ukraine-Russian conflict at the moment, I'm like literally every single vehicle, you could just go into town and buy them at a at a secondhand um, vehicle thing and be like, well, that's a great water truck. Uh, I remember the boys rolled one and um, they rolled the water truck, crushed the roof in like a Coke can. We rolled it back on its wheels and we just sort of kicked the roof back in and the thing functioned like yeah, they were indestructible. That was so great. Yeah, and the camas truck that we had, like, that was a big lifted um, sort of body truck. And, yeah, we used to just sort of bail twine some panels on the side and jump the horses on there. Like, that thing that thing was indestructible. I love that stuff. So, yeah, it was just, yeah, it's like, oh, we need a vehicle. And the boss man would go to, like, some military auction and be like, yep, I bought some uh, ex-army tanks and, um, and army vehicles. So, there you go. And we'd use that. Uh, I do have to ask, you mentioned earlier about the, when we were talking about your staff and the guys getting drunk on the job and yes. uh, how you switched to the more, like, your local Kazakh workers who were Muslim, but they did drink that horse milk. Yes. There is a photo of you holding a, like a two litre, like what we'd buy you two litres of milk in at Woolies, like with that kind Half of a, a shape. bottle. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That kind yes. of a shape container um, full of milk. Yep. What did it taste like? <sighs> Well, is it like off? I mean, I don't even honestly drink milk anyway, but it's oh. like, I don't and know. like, could you make it like um, chocolate flavored or whatever if you wanted, or is it just? I think that would be almost sacrilegious to the Kazakhs and Mongols and and the Central Asians. Uh, that'd be like uh, you know getting a great scotch of a Scotchman and putting Coke in there. I think if we made it chocolate, I, I'm sure you could, but literally, it's like room temperature milk that has kind of spoiled a little bit, but not. Yeah, it's like someone just put a little bit of tartiness in there, like some vinegar or something. Um, yeah, like, yeah, you drink it. Make sure, like, we'd get some people that would be a little overzealous and be like, I want the, the tourist experience. They'd be like, go easy on the horse milk, mate. You'll probably want to be with uh, 10 paces within the bathroom for the next 36 hours. Um, yeah, you know, it was a great diuretic. Um, <laughs> you'd, you'd, you'd pee like buggery. It's a great uh, cleanser, the Mongolians used to call it. Like, in the Mongolians oh, get profuse diarrhea and they've been drinking it their whole life. So you can imagine some white guy in, you know, Kathmandu, uh, Kathmandu gear turning up, you know. Oh, my God, I just want to immerse myself in culture and just be like, mate, you do realise there's not a flushable bathroom for the next 600 kilometres. You will be straddling some planks of wood over a pit of death. Did and, you not have a flushing toilet the whole time you lived there? Uh, at the main camp we did, but out bush, no, you just dug a hole and yeah. had the planks over the top and, uh, yeah, sort of straddle it. So. That must have been fun in the cold weather, like yeah. in the snow times. The cold was okay because everything was sort of freezing. It didn't <laughs> smell anything. The worst was when it was hot or the rain, range. Oh. Yeah, shooting in the rain is just... <laughs> 
horrible. <laughs> Everything's just wet and gross, and your paper's wet, and it's just, it's just, it's just foul. Yeah, that's. Yeah, no, I'll take the snow anytime. Oh, yeah, cold. yes, it's cold, but it just nothing smells, and everything's like frozen solid. So and much did, better. Did you get a buzz off that um, frozen? Uh, not frozen, off the <laughs> fermented milk. Yeah, like, no, you know, you can get proper like half half cut on it, a hundred percent. So. Um, yeah, you gotta be like, you know, you'd sort a couple of big bowls into it with the lads and, you know, it was a very, you know, macho culture in some ways, you know, oh yeah, we're all, you know, puffing our chests out. Let's see how much this little white fella can, can drink. So you'd slam down a couple of liters of, of horse milk and everyone would be singing and carrying on and be best of mates. And you're so. like, where's some wheat picks? Like, come on, like, <laughs> get me a bowl of Nutri-Grain, like. <laughs> oh yeah, have a, yeah, Bundy and milk. But yeah. Oh. <laughs> no, actually, I'm What's big that fan. other stuff people have with it? Um, Bailey's. Yeah, Kalua, something like that. Yeah. I don't know. I just, it's not pasteurized. There's probably a lot of worms that have passed into oh. it. Yeah. There's, there's a bit going on. There's a bit going on in it. So, um, like it's, it's something that, you know, I'll be returning to Mongolia in a couple of weeks and we'll drink a fair bit of there. And it's something that I'm not, I'm not repulsed by, but I wouldn't go, ah, oh, man, it's been a while. I really miss yeah. it. I, I, I long for some of that milk. So yeah, it's not, <laughs> it's not my favorite thing. No. Oh gosh. Well. As we start to wrap up on this episode, which, as I've pre-warned you, is like one of ten. Twenty. Because who knows? Like, oh, my gosh, there's so many. I want to um, ask for your thoughts and perspectives on in the stories you wrote for us, there's a sentence that, that's always stuck out to me and I just, would, I just want to get you to elaborate on it. Mm-hmm. You've said, when I returned to Australia, I felt like I'd failed. And it's actually that it goes on to about a whole paragraph. I won't read out the whole thing, mm-hmm. but we've just heard about these amazing adventures you've had, the huge challenges, you know, that you were up against. Um, mm. and you're still here and alive today. And as, as <laughs> from all reports, everyone so, yeah. else is still alive and whatnot. Why did you feel like you'd failed? Um, I think that was just part of being, uh, younger and, and, you know, it was a big lesson in managed expectations. You know, I was like, Oh, we're going to go. You know, over there, we're going to build all this infrastructure, fences and and barns and cattle yards and, you know, plant all these crops. And, you know, we'd sort of done a bit of a, a battle plan beforehand. I said, well, what's your budget and what do you want to achieve? And we'd sort of dot pointed. And then it soon unraveled and I was like, ah, you know, you got you got to break it into chunks and sort of walk, you know, crawl, walk and run. Um, yeah, I, I guess, you know, when I looked back, like it was, yeah, it was pretty horrible. Like you got yelled at a lot and there was a... There was a guy mediating from Australia that was sort of covering his ass because he'd given some pretty bad advice and, um, you know, it was probably a bit uh, maybe incompetent when it came to, you know, husbandry and cattle and, you know, I was a bloody vet and I was saying, you know, you need to do these things, you know, like uh, I was tertiary educated in this, field, in this field and you're telling the boss man otherwise and, like, it's it's not managing expectations well, it's chasing the precedence and it's changing the narrative. So, yeah, probably, you know, my heart is critic but... Uh, you know, so that's where I felt I'd failed. I was like, oh, I had all these grand plans, yada, yada. And I was like, literally, I got handed, you know, 500 head of cattle that were underfed, undervaccinated, underlooked after, weren't drenched. Um, you know, there was so much, uh, you know, disease and local stuff that we had to sort of arm wrestle with. It had been a really, really, really wet autumn and a lot of snow melt. Um, you know, we'd lost a few calves. There'd been a fair bit going on. Um, but then, you know, well, it's, it's sort of human nature, um, and, uh, to, to focus on loss rather than what you win. And I think afterwards, you know, when I do reflect and you have, you have yarns like this, you're like, 
holy shit, I didn't die. Oh, well, you know, we saved this and that, you know. And, um, yeah, so I felt like I failed in a lot of ways. But then, you know, as I got a bit older and reflecting on it, you know, years later going like, well, geez, it's sort of how many people at the age of 28 get that experience and, and that growth. And it's really prepared me for, um, you know, uh, the rest of my veterinary career and other aspects professionally and personally in my life. So it's, um, yeah, sometimes you don't see uh see actually your achievements and 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 the victories in front of you until later on sounds like you i guess you sort of learnt that it was a marathon not a race yeah that you know you've gone there thinking i've got this amount of time and i can get all this done and it's kind of the race and you've realized that not slow and steady take smaller bites and Young, you know, naive bullet brigade. Yeah, you know, which I'm sure there's probably listeners going, I remember that, or I've seen young people, you know, not even young, just, just people, you know, you're real keen and you're really, you know, it's exciting and it's new. And, uh, you know, it was such a, you know, what a, what a frontier thing to do. Like, you know, I felt like a, a pioneer, you know, coming to us, you know, a, a European coming to Australia for the first time and going like, wow, there's, there's nothing, there's nothing on this frontier, you know, so. Um, yeah, but, uh, yeah, you're exactly right. You know, it was, it's, it's a marathon and, and that was a great lesson for me to learn. And I've seen, you know, siblings, colleagues, friends, uh, family, um, you know, maybe not experience that lesson in its fullest. So yeah, it's, it was a gift in the long term. To finish up, can you share the story, uh, of the, um, what do you call it, a quote or a speech of um, this is water? Oh, my favourite. Uh, so it's one of my favourite little colloquialisms. Um, yeah, this is water. So David Foster Wallace, he was a contemporary um, philosopher and uh, he gave this speech to a graduating um, uh, class uh, several years ago and he said uh, there's two fish swimming along and they're swimming, swimming, swimming and they come past another fish swimming on their own and the singular fish says to the, the pair, Morning, boys. How's the water? And uh, the two fish sort of look at each other and go, oh, what's this crazy bloody fish talking about? And they keep swimming, swimming, swimming. And one turns the other and goes, mate, what the bloody hell's water? And his sort of discourse was, you know, don't forget what you're swimming. Don't forget what you're in. You know, don't don't wallow in banality. Don't just soldier on, you know, as the proletariat and forget to sort of experience what's going on around you which you know i've experienced myself getting in the rat race at times and and bogged down in career and working and saving and 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 goals that you like i you know you forget what's really going on and and smelling the roses so um it's a little it's a little saying that um a canadian girl told me in alaska many years ago and it really resonated with us and it was just before i went to kazakhstan and it sort of was something when i'd be sitting there going jesus i should quit i should leave what am i doing um not only in kazakhstan but in several other you know episodes of my life and um it's just something to always reflect on just going you know i'm doing i'm not sitting behind a desk just doing you know accounts receivable and an excel sheet for the next 30 years of my life you know um yeah, you got to taste failure. You you know this. You got to taste a bitter for the sweet to taste sweet. Uh, you can't make can't make diamonds without pressure. Um, you know, uh, yeah, you know, uh, you need life's challenges to to make you better.